my son vaults into a door like Wild E. Coyote running into the tunnel that the Roadrunner built. And and like chalk lines into the door and then flatbacks. And I throw my hands up and I look at my kids and I go, what the F is going on? All right, I'm super pumped for today uh, for a few reasons. First of all, you probably don't know this, but I try to do like a 15 minute, 30 minute call with my guests before we get on. Just to like, do we like each other? Is it going to be easy? Is this going to be okay? Just do the script. Don't deviate from the questions. That's not the guy we've got on the air today, which I'm pumped. And the funny thing is when we met, and I'm talking about Charlie Cole, who's the CEO of FTD, it was one of those things where it was like, oh my gosh, this is ridiculous. I actually have an opening in my calendar. Let's do this next week. And of course, at the time, next week feels like four months ago now. And and, and Charlie, it's all good. How you doing, man? I'm doing good. I'm I'm sorry. I uh, I'm sorry I blew you off. It was a uh... It was the classic excuse of the modern day world of COVID-19. And uh, and how I got it is sort of a wacky story if you're open to it. Oh yeah, bring it. All right, so my wife and I um, love to bring our kids to this park that's about a mile from our house. And we have this wonderful place called Chuck's Hop Shop, which is about halfway between the park and our house. And so we can go to the park, take our kids to, and they have food trucks outside this place. And my wife and I can have a couple beers. And this is in Washington. This is in Seattle, Seattle, Washington. Seattle, Washington's home base for me. Um, And uh, we can have a couple beers. The kids can get a cheeseburger and the kids just think eating at food trucks is like the coolest thing. They're they're four and two and a half. And we're, we're walking back home after having dinner and a couple beers. And and my wife's like, you know, I'm going to take a rapid when I get home. And I'm like, why? Like, we're literally walking a mile and like having beers. It doesn't seem like either of us are sick. And she's like, well, I always get a cough in the middle of my chest. And right now I feel like the cough is at like the back of my throat. It's just different. It's not my normal cough. And sure enough, we went home, tested positive, and And that's why I had to cancel on you last time. But um, I think we got it pretty easy. I was basically just so tired for about five days. Um, but you know, we've had a couple of people at our company get COVID this week and the new strain has been kind of been really putting people on their backside. So, uh, all things considered, it wasn't too bad, but that's why I had to blow you off. So sorry about that. I think that's a very good excuse for blowing me off. Okay. Uh, when you're not running FTD, by the way, and in some ways it's a pretty good starting point and, and metaphor. It's not totally clean, but the brand is a hundred year old brand. It's a legacy brand. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, before your time, FTD was based down where I live in San Diego, California. Uh, I'm not saying FTD got COVID or anything and then got a little tired and needed to rest and then kickstart with a new leadership team. But let's kind of jump into this. Like you take over a brand that's been around for a hundred years. Do you see or feel the gravity of the leg, like the, the legacy of the brand? Yeah. I mean, it's it, it was coming out of bankruptcy and um, I feel the gravity as really a blessing and a curse. You know what I mean? Because I think one of the hardest things to outrun is a reputation. And, and the reality is that FTD as a brand, particularly in the florist community, which is like the lifeblood of the business, um, was soured. I mean, and, and, and if you pardon the idiomatic phrase, Ryan, like it went bankrupt for a reason. You know what I mean? And so the 
the heritage, I think, is a huge blessing because people know who it is that gives you a chance to resonate. But at the same time, you have to really kind of uncover all the scar tissue to, to kind of get to the brand back to where it needs to be. And um, you could have never prepared me for this job. Right. Like I thought I was prepared for it. Like I thought I knew exactly what I was going to do. And I thought I knew and I interviewed and I did a good job and like, I got the job from our PE fund and everything seemed like it was exactly what it was going to be. And then about a week into the job, my uh, CTO and I were uh, commiserating and he's like, we have a lot to do. <laughs> and, it, and, you know, like it makes sense. Right. When you have when you have basically 110 years of accrued scar tissue, uh, you just got to start hacking away. So the gravity, certainly. Um, and it's it's a really good news and bad news. Well, I appreciate the honesty because I think a lot of people feel that way. Maybe they don't admit it or even. You know, it's kind of like dating, like everyone has their air quoting, their profile picture at the time. And, right. you know, I'm a married guy, but I met, we met on Match.com. Sorry, that's, that's a fact, my wife and I. And like you, they tell you what you think you need to know about the brand. And then you get in there and you learn, okay, a lot of that's true. And a lot of that is, oh, oh shoot, there's, there's more work to be done. Now, in the spirit of setting this up, when, when we talk about FTD, I don't think I'm doing you any favors. Can you talk about the portfolio brands for a second? Yeah. So um, without exaggeration, it's the most complex business I've ever been a part of. But on this on the surface, it's a very simple business. It's FTD.com, ProFlowers.com. And we use those those front end marketplaces to generate website orders. Right. I think if you're a consumer and you were to ask somebody what FTD.com and ProFlowers.com are, they would give you a very straight answer. They'd be like, oh, it's a website that sells gifts. Um, but behind the scenes, we have a, a network of approximately 10,000 florists that fulfill orders around the country. And that's where, really, like I said before, the lifeblood, that's how FTD started. Um, FTD started as what's called colloquially in the industry, a wire service. Because if you're a florist in San Diego and I'm a florist in New York and you have a florist walk into your store and be like, hey, I got to send a bouquet to my friend in New York City. How are you going to do it in 1920? Right. And so what they did is they, they literally sent the order over a wire, which is why it's still called a wire service today. And so um, we maintain that legacy, which gives you a remarkable advantage over the market, because I'm going to say something, Ryan, that's going to sound like total BS, but it's true. Like we have some of the largest same day fulfillment network in the entire world. Right. I mean, because because we have these florists, if you get on our website before 3 p.m., I can send you flowers in 92 percent of the United States. Right. Same day. And so that is awesome. Right. But it's also super complex mm -hmm. because if you're on my website and you need a dozen roses, right, the ubiquitous dozen roses. Right. Um, how do I know that someone hasn't walked into your flower shop and bought all the roses? Right. Because it's not we don't own the inventory. It's not ours. And people are walking to the store. There's other orders coming in. And so. Um, the way I like to describe our business to people that aren't familiar with it is we are Expedia for flowers, right? Because Expedia doesn't own rental cars. They don't own hotels. They don't own tourism services. They're basically a network of a marketplace that they fulfill around the country. Um, and we do the same thing for, for flowers and gifts uh, around the United States and beyond. So I like how you said the ubiquitous of the rose. I, I don't know if you have this or could share this information. How many roses are we moving today? Oh, my God. Uh, I'm going to guess 60 to 80,000. And how many is it? Cause guys messed up. No, you don't no. have to answer that. <laughs> well, so and here's, I, I'm glad you asked that question because the thing about FTD that I wasn't prepared for 
amongst anything, among other things, there's a lot of things I wasn't prepared for. But the thing that I think hit me the hardest, uh, Ryan, and it's going to make perfect sense when I say it, right? And everyone's going to be like, well, duh, but I just didn't appreciate it, is we are functioning at the most important moments in your entire life. So stay with me, right? Because that sounds like hyperbole, but like births, deaths, cancer diagnoses, anniversaries, I'm sorry, get well soon. Like if we don't do our part, a really hard and intense emotional moment just got either even worse, right? Or it's a missed opportunity to tell someone you love them, right? And so I think that what we do um, hit home for me really quickly when I started to get customer complaint letters. Like people would reach out to me on LinkedIn It'd be like stuff like, hey, you missed my my grandma's funeral. It's just like, good Lord. You know what I mean? It's just a gut shot. And so it, it's not just people that mess up. But I, your question kind of made me reminded myself is like, you cannot underestimate the emotion of the moments we're working in. I used to sell luggage, right? Your luggage doesn't show up on time. Maybe it's not on time for your trip and you're a little messed up about it. This is like if our order isn't what it's supposed to be, when it's supposed to be, you might have like screwed up a funeral or screwed up the arrival of a baby. And so um, it's for a lot of moments, including when guys messed up, but it's uh, all of them are super important. Yeah, Charlie, it's funny. I can't help but think about, um, you know, I'm like a classically trained storyteller, right? And so every movie is the same. Like the hero thinks, the protagonist thinks the journey is one thing and the treasure turns out to be something else. Like when I wrote Return on Courage, I thought this was, a devious attempt to position my company in a, in fish taco land in San Diego and then learned through the process of interviewing all these people. Oh shoot. Like I wrote the book cause I needed the book first. And second, my kids are watching every move I make and I want them to live a courageous life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a nice business card, but the, it changed. I imagine to you that moment when you get the opportunity to be CEO coming on two years. I think I'm getting that right. Um, you're like, this is awesome. I get a chance to be CEO. And then like you start receiving some of these really human moments. It's like, Oh, it's not about me. It's about like making sure there's connections are happening when, yeah, there's some pretty brutal stuff that's happening in the world. It could be cancer, but good things too. Like you said, a birth, does that just completely change the way or did it change the way you approach the job, the framing of what you do? hundred percent. I mean, 100%. And, and so my first day at FTD was March 23rd of 2020. So my first day was basically when the country went into lockdown for the first time. And okay, so I'm doing a bankruptcy turnaround. I'm at, I'm locked inside our house. I got a, at the time my kids were four months old and 22 months old. And so we're doing with all this stuff. And the playbook that I presented in my interview for FTD, because the reason they came after me is my e-commerce experience. I'm like, that's what I have to focus on. I have to optimize digital marketing and I have to have MTA attribution models. I got to do this stuff. It just went out the window after about two or three weeks when I realized that all that mattered is we have to fix our customer experience. It's all that matters. Otherwise we're all dead in the water. Now, fixing customer experience sounds, you know, that's kind of what we're all doing, right? But what we had to do to really get there, and I alluded to this, is we had to start with our florists. And and Ryan, like, um, I presented this statistic uh, this week at the Commerce Next conference. Um, When I joined FTD, our florist net promoter score. So the floor, if you ask the florist, hey, would you recommend FTD to another florist? Our florist net promoter score was negative 88. 
And so that means if you ask 100 florists, not only would 88 people not recommend us, they would actively tell you to run the other way. And so if you have 88 out of 100 florists that basically hate you, how good of a job do you think they're gonna do fulfilling your orders? And so I didn't talk about the florists at all in my interview, not at all. It was just an e-commerce business to me. Yeah. And so, and what made that abundantly clear to me was receiving ostensibly hate mail from customers that were, that were let down by us. And so, yeah, I mean, my playbook went out the window two, three weeks in. Well, I'm sure they didn't present that the net promoter score also was <laughs> not so great. Not that maybe they didn't know, right? Yeah. I'm, I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's amazing how little, you know, Ryan, when you buy a company in bankruptcy, you really don't learn a whole lot about what's really going on. You get sort of the financial statistics and you get a product, you get a little more unit economics here and there. But um, as we kind of unpeeled the layers, so to speak, um, the, the, the reasons this company went bankrupt became abundantly clear. So how many employees at the company? Uh, so I always over answer this question. Um, we have 130 in our uh, technology office in Hyderabad. Um, we have around a hundred customer service agents around the country. Uh, and then there's around 300 to 350, uh, in corporate. So call it 500 to 600 to be safe. And that's not including the florists, right? Correct. No. So the florists are independent practitioners. They, they, are, they, it's just like how hotels don't work for Expedia, same sort of analogy. I mean, the, the, what I'm trying to get a grasp of here is it's like, congratulations, you get the job. Oh, by the way, here comes a pandemic. Hey, first time CEO that really needs to get to know is 500 people and all these florists, and then you can't go anywhere. And like, so how exactly, like, how did you cope with that? How did you get to the truth with that? So I'll, I'll tell you, um, there's a lot of things I don't think I did right in this job for like the first year. There's a lot of things I learned and, and, and I'm happy to talk about those too. But two of the things that I give myself really high marks on are, is number one, um, for the first six weeks of my job, I set aside three hour blocks and took 12, 15 minute intro meetings a day with our employees one-on-one. And I can tell you, Ryan, without a shadow of a doubt, no way I would do that if there wasn't a pandemic. No way. I would have just like tried to be in the office and like have the water cooler moments as people talk about them and bounce into people when we're both parking our cars in the garage. There's no way I would have been as intentional as I was. And I will always do that for any job I start. Always. So basically, you know, 12 people a week, five work days. So there's 60 people, six, six weeks straight. You can meet 360 people in the company and just get direct one-to-one -one connection because what am I trying to facilitate? I want these people to be able to teams me and like know that I'm like a real human and not just like someone that's living behind Outlook and Microsoft Teams. So that was number one. And number two, um, we set up a florist advisory board and we basically tried to make a representative sample of the U.S. florist. So big city, small city, big florist, small florist, main street florist, warehouse florist, uh, longtime FTD member, new FTD member, big filler, small filler. Um, and we did 50 of them around the U.S. And we spent uh, 12 hours with these 50 people over six different Zoom calls and basically had us tell, had them tell us everything we were doing wrong. And um, I will never forget our team after our first call, 
our first two hour call with them, we all got on the call afterwards and was like, wow, did we just learn a lot. Right. And so I think the to put a bow on this, um, the pandemic caused me to be very intentional about communication. And I'm so glad I was. And, and, and I'm and in some ways, Ryan, I'm a little lucky in, in that regard, because otherwise I don't think I would have done it. I think I would have gotten on the road, you know, bought a couple florists lunch. I would have had a couple lunch and learns with the team. I would have done town halls, but having 360 one-on-one conversations and having 12 hours with florists just ripping us apart. That intentional level of communication is something that I will do at every job I ever have for the rest of my life. Yeah. It dawns on me as you share this, Charlie, that I, and I think what I'm about to say is absurdly sad. Okay, this is like a sad alert, and you're not living it, but it's a sad alert. Like, I've done about 75 of these podcasts now, and the aha moment I've had is that keeping it real and just telling the truth is now considered an act of courage. Hmm. And it's so hard to just tell it like it is, or like you said, like, I don't, like, you're the guy that's supposed to have all the answers. You're the CEO, right? And do you feel that pressure sometimes? And, and when have you just said, you know what, I have absolutely no idea how this is going to go? Well, I, you know, I, I really like being honest as like a, a show of courage. So here, here's the tricky part of, of this, this question. And, and I actually, I have a remarkable executive coach, uh, Ryan named Tom Andrews, and he and I talk about this a lot. Um, and one of the things we talk about is you have to be transparent and you have to be honest and you also have to read the room. And, and, I'll, and I'll tell you a story that I think exemplifies this challenge. Um, so we're, this is November of last year. Um, so we're 18 months into this transformation, if you pardon the cliche. And um, one of the big things we had to do was basically launch a new e-commerce platform, which is hard. Right. And there's site outages and things aren't working right. And it's slower than we want. And we lose organic rankings and we're just chipping. It's just just hammering away at it. And then it was stable for like a month. It was stable for like a month and, and it was working and everyone was happy. And I got this feeling that we had it behind us. I got this feeling that we were out of the transformational woods as it pertains to the, the e-commerce uh, platform. And then we have a six hour site outage. And the next day, we have our weekly business review and I walk in, well, walk in, I zoom into the weekly business review and I was like, so look, everybody, um, I just want to address like the elephant in the room. Like for me, yesterday was a total gut punch, right? It knocked the wind out of me entirely, but it's also just a reminder that we're still in this turnaround, right? And we're going to have to just be willing to roll with the punches. And I remember saying that and being like, good job, Charlie. Like, way to be honest and way to be emotional and way to tell them which one. We get done with that meeting, my head of HR calls me. And she's like, dude, you can't do that. She's like, you just scared the hell out of the whole company. And it totally threw me for a loop. It totally threw, because I, I immediately went like, wait a minute. Like, I'm supposed to be honest and I'm supposed to be vulnerable and I'm supposed to be empathetic. I'm supposed to do all these things. And, and that's exactly what I did. But now you're telling me I did a bad job. and. It is really a metaphor for what you just described, right? Which is, I don't need to be perfect as a CEO and I don't need to have all the answers, but I also need to appreciate everybody around me and the effects that I might have on them. 
And, and so I think um, that is the ultimate challenge because look, if I'm being honest and transparent all the time, or if you're being honest and transparent all the time, Ryan, and you're just like spouting off the crap that's happening in your head, you're gonna be a crazy person, right? And so you really have to kind of play both those roles of, I never want a lot of my team and I don't think I ever have. And yet sometimes you have to just suppress a little bit, right? Just a little bit. And, and it's um, it's a challenge that is, is probably the thing I think about the most, to be honest. Well, the, the reading the room comment that you made earlier and and look, you're using a lot of words that get in my like a lot of nod head nodding here, right? Like intentionality, right? Like intentionality is such a good word. Um, I also think like nuance, like I'm sure when you were forced into doing all those one-on-ones, like you go into those one-on-ones, like you're, you're a detective. I mean, you're kind of, you're on a fact finding mission and I'm sure somewhere along that journey, you realize, Oh shit. Like they're afraid of me. Some of these people are afraid of me. Like, and like they don't, yeah, you're going gangbusters to transform a company. They're just trying to keep their jobs and get home to see their children. That's not bad, right? The, the yeah. motives are different. They, they can have a role in the company. But as you go through those one-on-ones, is that when you're like, oh, okay, wait a minute. Everybody, everybody's got a different role here. Everyone, some people are trying to save the world. They're going to roll up their sleeves with me. And some people are just like, are going to be excellent at this one thing. And that's cool too. Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, uh, the thing I learned, and I didn't know this at first, just to be very clear, I, I learned it, is that the number one thing, the number one thing you have to manage against and just seek out and get rid of it wherever you can is institutionalization, right? And uh, there's that there's that great scene in, in Shawshank Redemption where they talk about um, Brooks being institutionalized, right? And what that meant was he wasn't capable of changing beyond the jail walls. Um, and maybe the saddest history in movie, saddest scene in movie history. Um, <laughs> uh, but like, so that analogy, that concept of institutionalization is the cancer of a company, right? Because what it means is you're not willing to change and you just went bankrupt, right? So you're not gonna change you went bankrupt. And so um, I, that's what I really need to do when I'm doing those 360 meetings is identify the people that are ready for change and identify the people that aren't. And sometimes the people that aren't ready for change can be brought along. And sometimes those people will never change. Right. And and I think that that as a leader uh, is the thing that you should be constantly doing with your team. Right. Who's ready to roll with the punches who's ready to change, who's ready to evolve, and who's stuck in their ways. Um, and, 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 you know, you have to make hard decisions in, in those areas. Um, but it's the area, Ryan, that um, I mentioned that I'm proud of, of uh, the interviews I did, I'm proud of the Forest Advisory Board, is the area that I think was my single biggest learning experience as a, as a turnaround CEO, is that needs to be mission one, right? Mission one, identify people, understand who's along for the ride, and understand who's ready to, like, change this darn thing and kind of start filtering people out um, because it's um, it's a hard it's a hard thing to do but um, I think that's the sign of any good company whether you're a startup whether you're I mean the, the term they use in startup land that makes this gl- sound glamorous is pivot right like we're we're willing to pivot 
right? You need people that are willing to pivot, especially after you just had your teeth kicked in. Um, so I, I think that that was an area that um, you said being a detective, that was what I was doing. I just didn't realize I was doing it. I, I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't know that's what I needed to be doing. Uh, look, I think virtual remote work, whatever we're calling this has also forced a lot of changes. I think in most ways, I'd say like 70% of the time for the better, frankly, it, it's forced late adopters to like, oh shit, like we got to pivot now, which yeah. I, I, I do question. I mean, it's funny. I was joking that WFW will be the new WFH, right? Work from work. Like when, when do we actually have to send out the WFW? And I think <laughs> one of the opportunities where WFW like right, is a real thing is like when I think innovation may have taken a hit here because everything is transactional. You're in a Zoom meeting and a Zoom meeting and a Teams meeting and a Teams meeting. And it's like your schedule is full and you don't have any of those, hey, do you have a minute moments, which are like the bane of my existence. But also that hour, which is what it is, is where the collision of ideas happen and really good ideas come of it. Do you feel like you're like, is that do you feel like those moments are happening still? Well, I mean, so that we were talking we were talking a lot about kind of how to facilitate these collisions. Right. The, we, I alluded to him before when I called him a water cooler moment. Right. And you asked the question, like, are they happening as often as you like? And, and my answer would be, we, we haven't quite cracked that code yet because I want to be acutely sensitive to keeping our team safe. Right. And I think by, we have an office open, we do everything we can, but it, it, you just run risks anytime you get big groups together. And so I don't, I don't want to basically force these collisions to happen because I want to keep our team safe. What we've tried to do is we've created a variety of ways for people to have those collisions. We have an employee resource group structure where people are like, we, I'm a part of a, the parents group, right? And we can go and we can talk about, you know, how are you managing your time with two kids under two during COVID, right? That's a good example, Ryan, of a conversation that would probably happen off the cuff if you were in the office together that we have to be, order of the day, a bit more intentional about. Um, and then we also are trying to create benefits for our team that allow them to, to recognize that this is a thing, right? That, that we, we need to be intentional about making sure that we're not having burnout, that we're uh, taking care of our mental health, that we're taking care of our families. And so I think for us, um, I feel really good about our progress, but I don't think we've gotten back to the same level of those collisions and water cool moments that happen naturally when you're in office. Um, but, you know, I'm very, very pleased with how much we're, we're getting there. Um, I would give us higher marks than most companies in the world, because I think if we're being honest, everyone's trying to figure out the answer to your question, which is how do you get those ad hoc meetings in the same way that you did when you were all in an office together? I wonder, like, there's no real answer on this, but being a first time CEO, if you're not mired in other data, because you're in it, you're like you're going through it. You're just trying to figure this out as you go along here. There's this famous proverb uh, that fear and courage are brothers, that you actually can't get to the courageous move without first channeling it through fear or whatever you might be afraid of. So I'd love to like just ask, you know, and it seems like you, you know, that's for the other words, we're both going to keep it real, right? So where are you personally afraid or like and professionally afraid? Like, what are you afraid of with the business? Um, 
and where I start. Uh, now it's only know, an hour show, so no. so so my um same guy, my executive coach, defines fear as anticipating an event that you won't like, right? Because all fear is is something that hasn't happened yet, right? You're basically manifesting something you don't want to have happen, right? I think there's a monster under the bed. When you look, you'll figure out if you're right or not. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and so with, with that kind of definition in mind, Ryan, the thing that I fear the most is um, losing trust from our florists, uh, not moving fast enough to, to, to regain that trust. And, and by the way, I think we're kicking ass in this department. I actually think we're doing everything we can. I think we're doing a great job. Um, what I was what I was told by our florists is that we like they're like we've had promises for ten years and nothing's ever changed. They're like so, so don't do that. Like don't be that guy. And sure enough, we roll out a new POS software. We know roll out a new local florist product. We roll out new order routing algorithms. We roll out new fresh flower sales. And florists are like, damn, like. FTD is actually changing, but I think the cataclysmic result for FTD is if we lose that momentum. I think we have to continue to invest in our florists. I'm not worried about it, by the way. I think we're doing the right things, and I think we've done a really great job, but that's my biggest fear is that we lose that momentum and florists go, same old FTD. I think that's the worst result we could have. Isn't that funny that that's the thing you hear in your head? It's like you're in the shower, same old FTD. It's like the, I, I, it happens to me all the time. By yeah. the way, I don't, I don't know if you've heard this. Someone once said to me that fear stands for false evidence appearing real. Oh, I like that. That's like yeah. a, an Italian job, uh, Italian job when Mark Wahlberg says he's fine. And they said that fine stands for a freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. <laughs> yeah, there like you go. Um, all right. So personally, I just, you know. Where's the personal fear for you? Is it, you know? Uh, that's an easy one. Okay. I, 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 I just want to be a great dad. And I want to, I, I mean, I, I want to be a great dad and a great husband. And the biggest fear I have is letting down my, my family. And um, fatherhood has changed me in ways that I couldn't have possibly imagined. Um, and, one, and I think one child, two children, like where two. I have a, I have a four year old and a two and a half year old, uh, Lila and Anders. And that is like a relentless fear, right? Like, am I doing what I can to help my kids? And look, dude, like you're never going to bat a thousand here. You know what I mean? You're going to make mistakes. I, I have a, I have a great story that is just, just so I, I, I wish I wish I had it recorded. So my daughter um, was just on the other side of potty training, right? So she's sitting on the potty and my son is somewhere. He's like eight months old. And so I'm kind of watching her and I'm kind of looking for him and, and I'm trying to make sure everything's going right. My wife's asleep because she usually sleeps on the weekends because I'm more of a morning person. And then I hear like my son getting closer and closer and closer. And my eight month old son, who's like a monstrous child, he was like off the charts, height, weight, and head. My son vaults into a door, like Wild E. Coyote running into the tunnel that the Roadrunner built and, and like chalk lines into the door and then flatbacks. And I didn't realize it, but my wife had just woken up, was at the end of the hall. 
And so I, I didn't know she was there. And I throw my hands up and I look at my kids and I go, what the F is going on? And I, I, I was so flabbergasted, right? So the reason I tell that story is, I think one of the things is you can't let fear run your life and you gotta be willing to make some mistakes. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know what I did wrong there. I wish my son didn't vault into the door. You know what I mean? But you're gonna have some puts and takes, but I think uh, the key is to not let that fear consume you more than anything. So, you know, can you also really quickly share your last week of travel for everybody? Oh yeah. Um, So we're doing this on a Thursday. Since last Thursday, Madrid, Paris, Seattle, San Francisco, Seattle, New York, Seattle. I mean, how does that play in this? And like, how does that play on, does that tug at you? Cause you got to do what you got to do yeah. for work, but you're also trying to be a dad. Uh, so I'll, I'll answer your question directly. Um, my last job, Samsonite, um, I traveled somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 to 400,000 miles a year. And I loved it before I had kids. Travel for me has changed entirely since I had children. However, however, and this is a little bit paradoxical, but um, I want my kids to love to travel. I want them to want to experience the world. So it's certainly a means to an end. Like bringing my kids home macaroons from Paris was like awesome. It was like awesome. And they really loved it. And then my Lila's like, dad, my, my Lila's our daughter, the four-year-old. She's like, dad, can you show me where Paris is in the map? She's like, oh, French. I speak a little French. Like, you know, and so like you just see this travel that becomes this catalyst to curiosity. And if there was one word or one adjective, I always want myself and my family to be as curious. I want us to be just relentlessly curious about everything and ask questions and learn and, and, and live. Um, so I don't love it. I don't want to travel for work, but it is a remarkable means to an end as a catalyst for curiosity. I'm sure it's made you a more empathetic leader to those who are parents because you're in their shoes. But, you know, you, you and I are simpatico on this. Like, I'm on the road a lot. Um, I got to be careful because this is recorded. This is on my end, not on yours. And my wife will also probably listen to this. And look, I want my kids to live a courageous life. Full stop. Like, I want them to go see the world, learn it in a textbook or however they're going to learn in a few years. But, like, go see it for yourself. And I think my wife, her definition of success, I could be making this up. This is me protecting myself. Is like, wherever our kids live, we'll live. And I'm like, no. Like, we're, like <laughs> please, no. Like, go and live an adventure and come back and report back on that adventure is my hope for them. And again, if they, can, if they hear this 10, 15 years down the line, do your own life. Have a blast with it. Whatever works for you is cool. Yeah, uh, but, I mean, it's, it's just, it, I think that's important. And, and don't do it from a place of fear. Do it from a place of, of kind of courage and curiosity, I, I think is a great way to think about it. So Charlie, before this CEO role, I mean, you mentioned it already, you've done a lot of pretty cool things in business. You've seen a lot, super impressive. So like, let's say for one minute, today, Charlie could have a 30 minute chat with 25 year old version of yourself. Mm-hmm. Okay, you got a 30 minute window. The Zoom is going to like turn off right at 30 minutes and you know 25 year old version of you has a lot of questions too what's the one piece of advice you tell yourself that's easy uh it's an easy one and um it's based on probably what i consider is my single biggest cultural learning experience work culture that is and that is build teams with people that are nothing like you 
uh, that would be the advice. Because when I was 25, I had, uh, I think I was 26. 26 was my first corporate gig when I became the VP of e-commerce for Lucky Brand Jeans. And up to that point, I had only worked with Charlie clones. And what I mean by that is like type A analytical types, right? That was who I worked with. I didn't design it that way. It was just kind of like the way it went because it's supernatural, supernatural to be like, oh, I need help solving a problem. I need more people like me. Right, like, like it makes sense, right? Like you're you're building a, a team of athletes, right? You're building a team of analysts. And what I didn't appreciate when I was 25, that I'm now just emphatic about that I'm 39, is you have to build diverse teams. And I always have to be careful how I say this next part, because I think people tend to think of diversity in the wrong way. Um, I think people think about diversity as a series of check marks, right? Like races, religions, sexual preferences, backgrounds, where they're from, national. That is a natural byproduct of, I think, what you need to be thinking about, which is people that are different than you, different backgrounds, right? People that grew up differently than you, people that studied differently than you, people that, you know, you don't need all athletes, you need some musicians, like, you know, and so, and I think what you'll find is if you're emphatic about building diverse teams, then the checklist will be there. Right. I mean, because you're going to get people from all over the world and different backgrounds. And, and so that was what I did not understand at 25. I did not understand how important diversity on your teams are, particularly mental diversity. And, and that would be the piece of advice I would love to have had that I, I eventually kind of learned through osmosis. I love that answer. And and again, I I always say diversity is not about checking a box. It's about helping you think outside your box. And 100%. exactly what you said, the, the collision of ideas get better when you bring perspectives from different places. So yeah, I, mean, right. I, I, I say all the time, if you have a team full of Harvard MBAs, your team's going to suck. If you have a team full of MIT PhDs, your team's going to suck. If you have a team full of uh, statistics and quantitative analysis majors from the University of Washington, like me, your team's going to suck, right? And so it really is about finding all of those pockets of brilliance that are around us that there's no freaking way you're capable of by yourself. And I think that's the way you should you should always approach it. All right. So I'm also curious if you could do it. This part, I don't think is as easy. So what would 25-year-old version of you ask you today in that same Zoom? <laughs> oh, man. Um, well... I think I can ask, answer this question. Um, what should I be studying to be ahead of the curve? Uh, I think it's what 25 year old would ask me because I, it's funny, uh, Ryan, is I think when I was 25 or 26 is when I really considered going back to school and get a computer science degree. Um, and, and part of me is like stuff worked out. All right. <laughs> I didn't do it, but you know, things have gone pretty well for me, but part of me is like, kind of wish I had that every once in a while. So I think 25 me would be asking like, what do I need to be learning? So I'm ready when I'm 40, um, which for me is in seven days. So, you know, like I, I got to get on it. Oh, that is big time. Well, let me, let me be the first to tell you that someone said to me, it takes you 40 years to figure out who you are and the next 40 to be that person. So I think that's entirely accurate based on what I've learned in my first 39 years. And secondly, you're a better man than me. There's no way the 25 year old version of me would have asked that question to myself. I'd be like, wait a minute. So I'm married first wife still I've got kids. Okay. Okay. This is, this is not so bad. Not that there's well, anything I mean, wrong. With I think, um, 
ambition has, has, regardless of age, always been something that I was pretty forthright about. So I think it's a pretty good guess. I think it's a pretty good guess. Charlie, this has been awesome, man. I learned a ton from today. I mean, one, I, I love your intentionality. I love how, how real you keep it. Um, I appreciate your commentary about reading the room, about thinking about things differently, um, specifically, okay, recognizing it's tough to figure out like where burnout is when people are hiding behind the Zoom all day and the way you think about benefits. Uh, I hope we keep in touch. If you ever get down to San Diego, let me know and uh, stay courageous out there. That's a date, man. I, I It was a fun conversation, Ryan. I'm, uh, I'm I just... I love things like this, which it's, we had literally no script and just kind of riffed on stuff. So it was a really good time. And happy birthday. This is why I don't sing. This is why I won't be the musician part of the yeah. group. But happy birthday, man. Thank you. I, I share my birthday with Mike Tyson. So June 30th. You can think of me and you can think of Mike Tyson. If I only knew a place where I could send you flowers on your birthday. <laughs> I'm, All right, I, I'm, I'm sure we can, we can figure that out. <laughs> Thanks, man. 